The book of Revelation, uh, definitely the most mysterious book in the Bible. It's basically the vision that God gave to the prophet John. John was an apostle. And as you read through the Bible, you'll notice time and again we get to see visions of people. And visions are noteworthy for, among other things, weird. They're just weird. Why do they see what they see? You, you, would, you wouldn't expect that's what a vision would look like, but it does. And then you know, though, that what they see actually represents something else. And so people will take a lot of time trying to decipher what the vision means. And John, he tells us exactly what was transpiring. Hey, thanks, Craig. That's a good place for it. Thank you very much. <laughs> the, the Apostle John wants to explain to us exactly what was going on when he had his vision. And that's where we're at. We're in Revelation chapter 1. Uh, we're, we've gotten to verse 9. And here's what John writes. He's writing this down, but it's after the fact, of course. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. Let me stop right there for a minute. I'm your companion in suffering and in patient endurance. Being a follower of God is not easy. Being a human being is not easy. We like to encourage ourselves, and we should, and be optimistic, and we should. But let's just be frank. Life is hard. People, our friends get hurt. We get hurt. We do stupid things. Our friends do stupid things. We get sad. We get lonely. Uh, we got diseases, afflictions of the soul, the body, the mind. There are wars. There's drug addiction. There's politicians. There's everything. <laughs> so what you experience in this world, it's not different than what the apostles experienced. And I find that encouraging because sometimes I wonder, what am I doing wrong? Why is it like just raining down on me? You know, I'm trying to live for God, and, and I'm praying, and, and I think I'm doing everything right. Then, and if I'm doing everything right, then why is everything going so wrong? Well, that's because I'm forgetting what the Bible says. Doing right doesn't mean everything's going to feel good. Jesus did right. Look how it ended for him. So let's not make the mistake we often make that the difficulties of life must mean we're doing something wrong. Life is hard. That's the way it is. We live in a fallen world. But Jesus is going to redeem us. And that's our hope. So I'm your brother. I'm your companion in the suffering and the kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. John says, I was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven congregations. So John, I don't know what he's doing at that exact moment, but he's just telling you, there I was on the island serving God, minding my own business, when all of a sudden behind me, I hear this really loud voice talk. And as we're going to see in a minute, he did exactly what you and I would do. He turned around to look. You've ever been exposed to a really loud, sudden noise? What's your immediate response <laughs> You can't help it. You, you, you instantly freak out. And then you turn around, and you say, oh, it's just you. 
But like in the horror movies, sometimes you turn around and what you fear to see, it's worse than you expected. And you scream, ah! Well, this was so scary that John fainted. And it wasn't that he fainted out of horror in the sense of him seeing a monster, but he saw something that was so overwhelming to his senses that he lost consciousness. He couldn't deal with it. It was a vision of the resurrected Jesus. And John just could not handle it. Verse 12, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, white like snow, and his eyes were like a blazing fire. Maybe it kind of was like a horror movie. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. And in his right hand, he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. I mean, think about it for a minute. He turns around and he sees this face. The eyes are on fire. The face is shining like the sun. Out of his mouth comes a double two-edged sword. Ah, he couldn't handle it. And I don't think it's because John was weak or a sissy or anything like that. He was in the presence of the resurrected Jesus in his glory, and he just couldn't handle it. And his sensory overload, he shut down. He falls down at his feet as though dead. Now, that's not the Jesus we're all familiar with, the one with the blazing eyes and the shining face and the sword coming out of his mouth. The one we're familiar with is the one that continues in verse 17. Then he placed his right hand on me, and said, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forever. And I hold the keys of death in Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. All right, we're going to look at all that in some detail now, in some detail over the next couple of weeks. But I want to draw your attention for a minute to verse 19. If you have your Bibles, feel free to open up. Um, there's Bibles in the pew in front of you. I usually put the verses up on the screen, but sometimes it's nice to have that book in front of you. I'm in verse 19, and here's what it says. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. All right, so what he's saying, to me anyway, verse 19 is like an outline of the book of Revelation. It's telling us that the things in this book that he's about to write down deal with the things that are now and the things that will take place. It's contemporary and it's future. So the book of Revelation, from John's perspective, had stuff that dealt with his near time and stuff that dealt with his future. And I think we're in chapter 1. In chapter 2 is the letter to the seven churches, and we'll look at that. And chapter 3 continues the letter to seven churches. I think that was the this is now time, the contemporary time. And then chapter 4 and forward, it's all different. And I think that's what is to come time. Could I be wrong? Of course. But that's my take on it. So we're going to look at next week and the following weeks to chapter 2 and 3, and we're going to look at the seven churches and what Jesus says to them. But this chapter is about the revelation of Jesus himself, which is interesting because the book opens up saying the revelation of Jesus, which God gave to him. I remember when I was really young in the faith, asking a Bible teacher, the way the English reads, it could go either way. Is this the revealing of Jesus himself? The revelation of Jesus? 
Or is it the revelation that Jesus owns because God gave it to him? And he said, yes, it could be both. I say, ah, so in this chapter, he's being revealed. So let's look at, see how John describes Jesus, how Jesus revealed himself, and see if we can understand what's going on. Verse 12. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. All right, I've seen lampstands from that day and time, from that era, from that uh, location. They look like, you know, the stereotypical Aladdin lamp with the little curve, you know, and the little, they kind of look like that, but they're on a stand, almost like, you know, one of these stands. So you can imagine it might stand about this high, and it looks like a little Aladdin lamp. It has oil in it, and it, it's lit up. These were golden, so he sees seven of them. When I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. All right, so the first description is about the seven golden lampstands. It's not really about Jesus. It's about what he's walking amongst. And obviously, we want to understand what do the lampstands mean. We don't have to guess. In fact, it would be unwise to guess. The scripture actually tells us. I know I'm beating this into you. What are the three most important rules in studying scripture? Context, context, context. So all you have to do is read a few more verses, and you know exactly what the lampstands represent. In verse 20, it says up on the screen, the seven lampstands are the seven congregations. So he's going to write seven congregations. The seven lampstands represent the seven congregations. So what do we know? We know that Jesus is seen walking amongst the seven lampstands. So Jesus is seen walking amongst the seven congregations. We know that Jesus is interested in his church. He's present with his church, and he walks amongst his church. Verse 13 says, someone like a son of man. Now, out of all the things that John could have said about Jesus in this revelation, why does he refer to him as someone like the Son of Man? Why not the Son of God? Why not the Messiah? Why not the Star? Why Son of Man? So I wanted to do a quick survey as to the significance of that phrase, Son of Man. Why did he use it? What does it mean? I was surprised to find... The, the usage of that phrase goes all the way back to one of the oldest books in the Bible, which is the book of Job. So we have one of the first books of the Bible uses that phrase, and this last book of the Bible uses that phrase. Here's how it's revealed in the book of Job. This is Job writing, speaking, and this is what he says. How much less a man who is but a maggot, a son of man who is only a worm. Am I saying Jesus is like that? No, not at all. What I'm trying to tell you is that the, word son, the phrase son of man occurs in at least three different ways in the scripture. In this way, it reveals, it reveals the frailty of humanity, the lowliness of the human condition, especially for Job at that moment. He said, on the scale of greatness, God being on this side, Job said, I, as a mere man, I'm on the maggot scale. I'm closer to mag mag maggot magnitude than I am to divine magnitude. In fact, David, when he wrote the Psalms, in considering God, he said, what is man that you even consider us? Now, I'm not trying to make you go home and feel bad about yourself being a human. 
We are loved and we're dignified and filled with honor and God's going to elevate us above the angels. But let's have some perspective. Compared to God, we ain't nothing. We're less than nothing. You know? Sort of like, you know those little snap crackers you throw against the ground and they go pop? They're really fun. Compare that to a nuclear weapon. And boast, look at me, I'm explosive. I'm awesome. You just chuckle. Nice, nice boy, nice. So Yeshua calls himself, this is Jesus, he calls himself son of man to fully and completely identify as a human. He wasn't part human. He was fully human. He got tired. He got worn down. He got frustrated. He was born in a manger. You know, he, he experienced life. And he wants us to know he's one of us. He's a human. But Son of Man, as I said, there's at least three different things that it infers. Son of Man also reveals to the majesty of the Messiah. In Daniel chapter 7, listen to what Daniel wrote. Another vision. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming in the clouds of heaven. And he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So Son of Man, on the one hand, refers to his humanity, but on the other hand, it refers to his majesty as the Messiah, his divine nature. And thirdly, well, I guess I, I have to slip into that as the third one. The second one is the Messiah. The third one is his divine nature. Son of Man refers to the fact that he was incarnated. Um, when I tell you that Jesus was fully man, I could also tell you that he was fully God. He wasn't 50-50, he was 100-100. So when we refer to him as son of man, it does emphasize his humanity, but in thinking of his humanity, we also have to think of his deity. So son of man also refers to his low side, it also refers to his high side. He is both God and man, he's human and divine. He's son of God, son of man. This is what John sees. Then in verse 13, he tells us how he's dressed. He's dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet. Why is he telling us how he's dressed? I'm just going to come up with this thought. It must be insignificant. Why would he tell us if it didn't mean anything? So then I had to ask myself, what does it mean? I've never considered it before. So I did some research. And the first thing that stumbled across my brain was the way that the high priests were dressed. It specifically says that his robe is down to his feet, too. So, here's John, the Jewish apostle, looking at the Jewish Messiah and saying he's wearing a robe dressed down to his feet. I'm wondering if he's thinking, and I'm just wondering, I don't know, if Jesus is kind of our high priest. And so he looks like our high priest in the vision. Could be. I don't know this for sure. I'm just guessing. So the Jewish high priest wore a robe down to his feet, but so did a lot of other people. So that... Jesus was in the Jewish culture, so was John, but they were also in the Roman culture. So then I brought my mind over to the Roman culture. In the Roman culture, they wore a robe down to their feet called a toga. I know you've all heard of togas, 
but you probably never knew that they were actually robes that went down to the feet because you just saw the ones at the frat parties that went above the knees. Those aren't really togas, or at least not the kind that these people would have been familiar with. Togas were symbolic clothing. Like, I am wearing absolutely no symbolic clothing whatsoever. Well, maybe I'm a lumberjack, I don't know. <laughs> but if I was wearing, maybe if I was at an Anglican church wearing a robe, or a Catholic church wearing, you know, whatever those things are that they wear, ah, it's symbolic, it represents something. It, in, in our Saturday congregation, we, we wear symbolic clothing. The yarmulke represents that God is overhead, and we wear it during worship. And the prayer shawl ties to the verse in the scripture that said Jewish people should have fringes on the borders of their garments. And this is like a covering that God's Holy Spirit covers. And these knots are knotted in such a way as to remind us of the 613 commandments of God, all very symbolic. But in our culture, we're not much into symbolism. Joseph, my son, went to a quinceañera celebration the other day. I probably said it wrong. And I know it's a coming out party for a 15-year-old girl, quince. And I said, was there a ceremony involved? And he said, well, yeah, they took off her flat shoes and put her in high heels. It's like, okay, I'm just going to have to guess at what that is. I guess little girls wear flat shoes and grown women wear high heels. I guess. I don't know. I'm guessing. But it's symbolic, you see. In our culture, we're not much into symbolism. But in that culture, they were heavily into symbolism. Only a Roman citizen could wear a toga. You were breaking the law if you wore the wrong kind of clothes in Rome. Yeah. Only a Roman. So what does the robe down to the feet represent to a Roman? You're a citizen. You have full credentials. Ah, it makes sense that Jesus was wearing a robe down to his feet then. He's a citizen of heaven. He's got full credentials. Also, a toga throughout different times of the Roman Empire, because sometimes they change meanings, but sometimes the toga was only worn during peacetime. So the toga represented peace. Well, that's interesting. Jesus is the prince of peace, and he's in heaven, the ultimate destination for peace. And so it would make sense that he's in a robe that John could have identified as a message of peace. Magistrates had to wear robes that went down to their feet when they were doing their office in Rome, when they were serving in, in office. So a uh, robe down to the feet also indicated authority. It indicated um, power. It indicated honor. Verse 13 also said, a golden sash around his chest. A triumphant general had his toga embroidered in gold. So I put all these things together, and maybe that's what John saw. Or maybe I made it all up. I don't know. It makes sense. But I don't want to tell you that's definitive, because the scripture doesn't tell me it's definitive. And we've got to be real careful about this sort of thing. I know that sashes were also worn by priests, royalty, and generals. Every one of these things I pointed out, is, it fits. Verses 14 and 15. His head and hair were, were white like, like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. If you follow me on Facebook, you saw me a couple weeks ago post a question, do British judges still wear white wigs? 
This is why I posted the question. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. And I was just wondering, why do the British judges wear white wigs? What's the symbolism before it? And I didn't get any ties in to the biblical meaning. I thought they'd say, yeah, it goes back to the book of Daniel and to the book of Revelation where white hair represents honor, authority, and dignity. But the funny thing is, though they may not know that, that's exactly what it's doing in Britain. The judge puts on his white wig, the barristers put on their white wigs, honor, authority, dignity, respect. I don't know why his hair is white in the vision. But in Daniel, we see the same thing. Chapter 7, verse 9. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire. I think the whiteness deals with purity. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. So I think the whiteness has to do with purity. But I don't know for certain. I find it interesting, though, in Daniel that I just read to you, this vision of him with the white hair isn't Jesus. This is the, the vision of God the Father. And so they're both seen as having white hair. Now, this brought to my mind a lesson I need to give you. You know, I like to teach you tips on how to study the Bible, like the first three rules for Bible interpretation, context, context, context. Let me give you another one. Here's one that so many people fail in. People who author books, people who are scholars, people who have more degrees after their names than a bowl of alphabet soup. They make this mistake. And when you read what they write or listen to what they teach, they make the mistake, they lead you astray. So I want to help you in studying the Bible and being able to differentiate for what people say in this area. How do I say it? Okay. In the book of Isaiah, here's an example. The children of Israel, the nation of Israel, is compared to a vineyard. All right? So that has led some people to think that every time a vine is mentioned in the Bible or a vineyard is mentioned in the Bible, it must reference the people of Israel. Anytime there's a metaphor in one place in the Bible, they take that metaphor and place it throughout the rest of the Bible. You cannot do that. A metaphor in one place in the Bible doesn't necessarily mean that thing's a metaphor everywhere else in the Bible. Can't a vineyard just be a vineyard? Does it always have to be a metaphor from that point forward? No, it doesn't. Just because it's a metaphor in one place doesn't mean it's a metaphor in another place. Let me give you a couple of examples so you can know I'm you can agree with me, understand what, I know what I'm talking about, and say, Steve, you're right. I'll never believe that way again. <laughs> Jesus is called the lion of the tribe of Judah. Is he a lion? No, it's a metaphor. In the book of Judges, Samson is attacked by a lion, and he grabs it and rips its mouth open and kills it. Does that lion represent Jesus? No. How blasphemous would that be? So case in point, just because something's a metaphor in one place doesn't mean it's a metaphor in another place. And in addition to that, just because a metaphor of one thing means something in one place, you can use it as a metaphor for something else in another place. So one metaphor in one place doesn't mean the same as the same thing in another place. Jesus is called the lion of the tribe of Judah. Satan is called a lion who goes about seeking whom he might devour. So obviously... 
A lion could refer to Jesus, and a lion can refer to Satan, and a lion could be just a lion. So anytime you read the word lion in the Bible, don't automatically assume it's Jesus, or don't automatically assume it's Satan. Just assume it's a lion, unless it's being used as a metaphor, and then don't assume you know what the metaphor is pointing to unless it tells you in the context. If it does tell you, you know. If it doesn't tell you, you don't know. You can guess and have an educated guess, but don't think you know, because people always know things that they don't know, and we know there's things we don't know, and we don't even know what we don't know. In Revelation chapter 1, one more example. Revelation chapter 1, I just told you about the seven lampstands. What did they represent? Seven churches, that's right. But later on in chapter 4, listen to this, chapter 4, verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. And then it says, these are the seven spirits of God. So even in the same book of the Bible, within two chapters, the same metaphor, lamps, refer to two entirely different things. This is extremely important. Because when you study the Bible, you don't want to think you know something that you don't know and lean upon it and then be disappointed down the road. Verse 16. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Boy, I'd like to see what that vision looked like. He's holding stars in his hand? Talk about authority and power and omnipresence and omnipotence and deity. And What's it even look like to hold a star, let alone seven stars? The sun's a star. Hold that in your hand. Hold seven of them. Wow. Let me tell you, one thing you're going to get from this chapter is Jesus is awesome. Just, you know, you can't even put him on a scale. He is awesome. Because he's awesome, you can trust him. If he says he can do something, you don't ever have to question it or wonder about it. You can, you can rest in it. You know the little deadfall trust experiment where somebody says, I'll catch you, I'll catch you? And we're like, yeah, no, forget about it. Don't you trust me? No, I don't trust you. I'm not doing it. But with Jesus, he could say, hey, jump out of the airplane. You don't even have to say when. Just do it. I mean, Jesus is awesome. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And again, context, context, context. They represent something. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And as I've told you in the past, that word angels is a bad translation. Better representatives. The seven stars represent the representatives of the seven churches, which are probably the senior pastors. Verse 16. Out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. Now that could not have been pleasant to see in a vision. I don't even know what that could have looked like. But what does the seven sword, the, the double-edged sword represent? Well, I think it refers to him being the judge and executioner of God's wrath. Jesus isn't just the Savior, he's also the judge. He isn't just the Lamb of God, he's the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Psalm 149 uses a double-edged sword. Let me read it for you. Psalm 149, verses 5 through 9. Let his faithful people rejoice in this honor and sing for joy on their beds. May the praise of God be in their mouths and a double-edged sword in their hands to inflict vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples, to bind their kings with fetters, their nobles with shackles of iron, to carry out the sentence written against them. 
This is the glory of all his faithful people. Praise the Lord. We know what swords are for. You know, if John lived today and the vision was today, it would have been, you know, an AK-47 coming out of his mouth. What are swords for? Swords are for, for fighting, they're for destroying, they're for killing, they're for justice and judgment and destruction. Well, maybe it's symbolic, maybe it's a metaphor, maybe it represents something, maybe, but it doesn't say it represents anything. And so I'm just going to stick with the common meaning of it. A sword is for, for destroying. It's for fighting. And we, when you read later on in the book of Revelation, you see that Jesus comes on a white horse with a sword and he destroys his enemies. So we've got to understand that in Jesus' awesomeness and we've got to understand in Jesus' love, we also have to understand Jesus' wrath. And I think John's getting a picture of that. A double-edged sword is also mentioned in Hebrews. And I want to talk to you about that for a second. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing the soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts, attitudes of the heart. Hebrews chapter 4, chapter, chapter 4, verse 12 isn't talking about a sword. It's talking about the word of God. And it's trying to let us know that the word of God is sharp. It does what it needs to do. So there is no metaphor for a sword in Hebrews. It's the metaphor for the word of God telling us it's as sharp as the sword. It's a simile in a sense. It's a descriptor. All right, verses 17 and 18. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. As if his white hair, blazing eyes, and stars in his hand weren't enough to affirm his deity. If calling himself the Son of Man wasn't enough to remind us that he was the Messiah and the Savior, once more Jesus references his divinity by calling himself the first and the last. Now, unless you're familiar with the Bible, you don't understand that re reference. John did. John was a religious Jewish person who knew the Bible very well. Here's what John would have heard. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6. This is God speaking. This is what the Lord says, Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord Almighty, I am the first and I am the last. And apart from me, there is no God. So John knew that God calls himself the first and the last. When Jesus calls himself the first and the last, he can't help but make the inference that he's calling himself God. It's very straightforward. Verse 18, I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. That's pretty straightforward. Jesus is letting you know, even though I've got these fiery eyes and glowing feet and a sword coming out of my mouth and stars in my hand, you actually know me. I know I don't look like I used to look. It's a vision. But just to make sure you understand who I am, I'm the one who died and rose again. And I'm alive forever. Verse 18. I hold the keys of death in Hades. You got your keys? I doubt very much he's got a literal key ring up in heaven. It's a metaphor. He holds the keys. The keys of death in Hades? Wow, I'd have thought the devil would have had that set. No, he wants us to know he's got that set. He determines who goes to Hades. And he determines who gets out of Hades. You mean people get out of Hades? Absolutely. On the judgment day... <laughs> Just to be thrown back again, actually I'm mixing biblical concepts. When the wicked die, they go to Hades. 
And they stay there until the judgment. The resurrected out of Hades, judged, and then sent into the lake of fire. Jesus wants us to know he's the judge. He's the one who has the authority to do all these things. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, it says this. We are people of flesh and blood. That's why Jesus became one of us. He died to destroy the devil who had the power over death. But he also died to rescue all of us who live each day in fear of dying. So Jesus is saying, you don't have to fear dying. You don't have to fear the devil. I got the keys. And if you follow Jesus, you don't have to fear death. Death is just a transition into heaven. We've got nothing to fear. I have talked to believers shortly before they've died. And they're like, I'm good. I know where I'm going. It's a, it's a, it's a nice thing to see. It's a really nice thing to see. These are people who are just on their deathbed. And I'm like, you know, I want to make sure they're good. And they say, oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I'm set. I know I'm going to see him any day now. Like, how cool. I have actually told people, tell them hi for me. And I was serious. It was a joke, but I was serious too. Tell them hi for me and tell them we're, we're ready. We're waiting. And I don't doubt for a minute that they do. Well, Jesus holding the keys. Keys represent power and authority and the ability to make things happen and to keep things from happening. In John chapter 5, there's a whole section there about Jesus being the judge. And you can go home and read that if you want, verses 21 through 29. But uh, I'm running out of time here, so I just want to wrap up. I don't know where you are with Jesus. You know and he knows. If you've not made a commitment to him, if you've not entrusted your soul to him, I would like to encourage you to do so. He's got the keys, nobody else. He's the one to trust. If you do trust Jesus, I want to encourage you to not give up hope, to not give in to despair. If he says jump, he's got your back. He can handle, he's got stars in his hand. He's powerful. He can handle anything and everything. And he promised he'd be back for us. And he will. And I don't know when it could be tomorrow. Whatever. You know, I'm just ready when he is.